0: Good morning, guys. I'm so excited to get in, into God's Word with you. Um, like Jason said, I'm going to um, recite the Sermon on the Mount. Um, the people who originally heard the Sermon on the Mount, it would have been all at once. Um, they would have heard it. Um, they would have sat under Jesus' teaching and, and, and listened to the whole thing in full. So that's what I thought would be really helpful to do today. So whatever's most helpful to you, if you want to follow along with your Bible, feel free to do that. Dana's going to put the uh, words up here as well. Um, or if you want to just listen, that's fine too. I'm going to recite the whole sermon, and then the section that is in gold will be the section that uh, I'll be preaching on. So when you see the, the letters turn to gold, that means that's, that's what we're um, going over today. Let me, just, let me just pray real quick. Lord, um, we worship you. We praise you, Lord. You are worthy of all of our praise, God. We thank you for sending Jesus as the, the imprint of your nature, Lord, that your representation on earth, uh, God incarnate, Lord. And thank you for this sermon that he has given us. And thank you for the work that you're doing in our church through this series. And God, I pray, Lord, that you would continue to work in a powerful way through your word. God, help us to receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save our souls. Lord, faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. As we hear these words from Christ, Lord, minister to our souls. In Jesus' name, amen. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, Or by the earth, for it is his footstool. Or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Let what you say be simply yes and no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies, and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. When you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces so that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? The Gentiles seek after all these things and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Do not judge... Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you use, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will our Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rains fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rains fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Speak to us, God. So we've been studying the Sermon on the Mount, and you just heard it in full. That's how the people that were listening would have heard it. And it says that they were astonished at his teaching. What are some of the words that you would use to describe your reaction to, to the, the word just recited there and also this whole series? Would it be like that, astonished? Astonished, that, that Greek word means to strike out of one's wits or to overwhelm, like they were struck out of their wits. They didn't even know what to do with themselves. Is that our response? They were so astonished, verse 29 tells us, because Jesus was teaching with authority and not as their scribes. Authority, even that word author, authority, Jesus is speaking as if he is the author of all life. He is God. This is the authority that the people are shocked by. Like you can even see it. Like in the Beatitudes, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the what? Kingdom of heaven. Who is, who is this guy to tell who the kingdom of heaven is? He's speaking with authority. He says, You have heard it said in the law of Moses, but I say. That's authority. He's just said, He will declare to people on judgment day, I never knew you, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That is the authority that is striking these people out of their wits, astonishing these people. I hope that, that, that the weight of that, uh, that the authority of what Jesus is saying carries weight with us too, because We live in, in in 2019, there's a lot of people that love the Sermon on the Mount. Um, Even people of other religions and people who openly reject Jesus, they love the Sermon on the Mount because they, well, really because they love it because they don't know it, honestly. Because if you read the Sermon on the Mount in full, it is, it's challenging. There's authority that Jesus is speaking with. And sometimes we we can approach God's Word um, with like a, a, you know, a Chipotle line type of mentality like, all right, Sermon on the Mount, cool. Um, can I get a double scoop of uh, do not judge me? And I'll take uh, a little bit extra um, golden rule. I like that one. Um, but you can hold the, um, the Judgment Day stuff and um, the holiness stuff. You can hold that. That's how we can approach the Sermon on the Mount. And so a lot of people love the Sermon on the Mount because they think about the golden rule. And the, some people use the Sermon on the Mount to actively go against what Jesus wants for this world and for our lives. But my prayer is that we would approach the Sermon on the Mount and take it as a whole, what Jesus wants us to know. He's preaching with authority. And, And it's popular to think Jesus was just a good moral teacher. Jesus was not just a good moral teacher. He is God. And he is giving us a sermon with all authority that left the crowds astonished and struck out of their wits. He's closing this sermon that we've been studying for several weeks now with some application. Just like any sermon would, would go, right? He's talking about four sections here. So if you look at your Bible, you'll see, or this is what I'm going to hit, these four sections. One of them starts in verse 13, enter by the narrow gate. The next one says, uh, your heading may say a tree and its fruit, starting in verse 15. And then verse 24, uh, excuse me, 21, I never knew you. And then 24, build your house on the rock. Each of these sections, I want to briefly give you three C's. So there's going to be three C's in each of those sections. A contrast, a command, and a choice in each of those sections. So let's take them one at a time. The first contrast Jesus talks about is the wide versus the narrow gate, verses 13 and 14. And we see throughout the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus is very black and white, isn't he? It's, it's, it, he puts a contrast before you in this, and it's it's one or the other. It's very black and white. One gate's wide, one gate's narrow. One gate one gate's hard to find, one gate's easy to find. Many find one, few find the other. One leads to destruction, one leads to life. I like that. Jesus keeps it nice and simple for a guy like me. I, I understood that first time I read it. Um, And his illustrations are so simple and vivid. Can't you picture what Jesus is saying? A huge, wide gate with an easy road and then a hard, narrow gate. I I was thinking about um, the Eagles Parade. I was at the Eagles Parade. I was on Broad Street. That's just a free one for a preacher. It's broad, Broad Street. And tons of people walking down Broad Street doing whatever they want. Just kind of, they can bring whatever they want. They can bring the booze they want. They bring the signs they want. There's no rules, really. It's just, it's an easy way to go. You can just hop on in. And then I picture the, wide, uh, the narrow gate as a, a very tiny gate that you have to squeeze through. It's hard to find it. This is the, this is the uh, picture that Jesus is illustrating here. And it doesn't take a genius to figure out what Jesus is telling us here. He's telling us and showing us through the illustration that following the world into the wide gate is easy. Following Jesus into the narrow gate is hard. Living the life that Jesus calls us to, which we've been studying this whole Sermon on the Mount, right? What it looks like to be in the kingdom of God. Living that life is hard. It's not easy. And Jesus is showing us that. It's not easy. It's easy to be proud and self-centered. It's hard to be poor in spirit. It's easy to go along with the crowd. It's hard to be persecuted for righteousness' sake. It's easy to be angry at people and have hatred towards people. It's hard to love your enemies. It's easy to lust and watch and click things we shouldn't. It's hard to tear out our eye if we need to, to battle back against that. It's easy to retaliate and get even. It's hard to turn the other cheek. It's easy to store up treasures on earth. It's harder to store up treasures in heaven. It's easy to be anxious. It's hard to trust God. It's easy to see other people's sin. It's hard to see our own sin. Jesus is telling us it's difficult. In a parallel verse, you know, Jesus preaches this. Uh, this there's another account of this sermon in Luke. We we went through it a couple years ago as, as a church. And it's, a, it's different, but it's an account of the same teachings. Luke 13, 24, Jesus says, strive to enter the narrow gate. That word strive, we've talked about here in church before. Kenny has explained it. It's the word agonizomai. You guys remember that? What, where do you, what word do you think we get from that? Agony, agonize. Agonize to enter the narrow gate. Jesus is, there's no fine print in following Jesus. Jesus is coming right out right now and saying, it is difficult to follow me. So what is he telling us to do? That was the first contrast. The first command is he's commanding us, enter by the narrow gate. He is commanding us to, regardless of what the people around us are doing, to enter by the narrow gate. And the chances are the majority of your coworkers, the majority of your classmates, neighbors, uh, people around you are not on the, uh, in the narrow gate and on the difficult road. They are on the wide and easy road that leads to destruction. How do I know that? Because Jesus just said that many are on that road and few are following him in the narrow gate. Many of them are on that easy road and they want you to join them. Everything that's coming at us in every direction wants us to get on the easy road, get on the, on the, on the, go through the wide gate. And the wide gate is so tempting, isn't it? It's easy. We love easy. We gravitate to- so much towards the easy road. Jesus is teaching us a really important tool of discernment right here. And this is, this is what Jesus wants us to see. Don't look at the gate in the road. Look at the destination. If we look at the gate in the road, it's a no-brainer. It's like, this is easy. We're going this way. But if we look at the, defini- uh, the destination, it's even more of a no-brainer, right? Destruction versus eternal life. This is the essence of temptation, isn't it? Temptation wants us to look at the short term, wants us to look at what's gonna gonna be good for right now. Jesus is saying, don't give in to that. Temptation wants us to look at the short term and ignore the long term. And our flesh is so quick to buy that sales pitch, isn't it? We look at the short term and not the long term. Jesus is saying, look at the long term, look at the destination. And he's saying, enter by the narrow gate. It will be hard, it will be difficult, but it will be worth it. Not just just hold your breath and deal with the difficulty until you get to heaven, then you'll get, he's saying, no, it'll be worth it now and for eternity. That, That road that leads to life, he's not just talking about eternal life, he's talking about eternal life that starts now. Pleasure's at his right hand forevermore that starts right now. Jesus says himself in Matthew 10, 39, whoever finds their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. I heard it said like this, in following Jesus, you get the best of both worlds, this one and the next. There may be some in this room that are on the broad road that leads to destruction. And you have not entered by the narrow gate. Jesus is saying, enter by the narrow gate. It will be hard, it will be difficult, but it will be worth it. Now, is Jesus just talking to unbelievers here? Is he just talking about people who are moseying down the the easy road? Is this strictly an evangelistic command telling people to enter by the narrow gate? I don't think so. As Christians, don't we face forks in the road every single day? We are given the opportunity to take the wide or narrow road hundreds of times a day from the moment we open our eyes in the morning. Should I snooze the alarm? Or should I get up and spend time with the Lord? One's easy, one's hard. Should I laugh along and enter into this gossip? Or should I speak up and stop it? Should I click on this? Or should I close this app? Should I reach out to this loner at school? Or should I just keep doing my, things, my thing with my friends? Should I have another beer, knowing that the line is already crossed? Should I leave my family in prayer and worship? Or maybe just do it some other time? Should I write this tithe check or wait till next month? And so on and so forth. We face these forks in the road every single day. Guys, I was convicted this week as I'm I'm writing this sermon that so often I take the easy road. I take the, the easy and wide gate. Jesus is saying, enter by the narrow gate. So the first choice Jesus gives us is the wide or the narrow gate. Which one are you taking? And maybe you're like me, and God is convicting you through this text that you take the easy road and that you have been on the broad road. Even this week, you're thinking of ways that you've taken the easy road. Know that you can come to, the, come to Jesus right now, receive forgiveness, and walk on the narrow path that leads to life. By the way, I didn't think of this. This wasn't in my notes, but read the book Pilgrim's Progress if you haven't uh, read that book. The whole book is basically based on this idea of the wide and narrow path. And many times, uh, Christian the the main character, strays onto the easy road, but he comes back to the narrow road. And that's what we all can do right now by turning to Jesus. The second contrast Jesus gives us in this next section is good fruit versus bad fruit. Look at verse 15 and 16. Nothing on the Sermon on the Mount is is by coincidence, including the order of it. So why right after Jesus' command to enter by the narrow road is he talking about false prophets? Where does that come from, Jesus? Jesus. I believe what Jesus is saying is that there are going to be many false prophets standing at the wide gate saying, come on, this way, this way to Jesus, this way to God, this is the way to, to, um, to Jesus. He says, they're in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. Jesus says we'll recognize them by their fruits. He's teaching us another, another um, tool of discernment here says, are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Well, no, Jesus, obviously not. In the same way, someone who is healthy spiritually is going to bear good fruit. And someone who is unhealthy spiritually is going to bear bad fruit. Once again, how simple. Thank you, Jesus. He's saying that we can recognize the spiritual health of a person by the fruit they bear. So if we're wondering if someone's a false prophet... We can look at the fruit they are bearing and be able to tell whether they are spiritually healthy. Or we can even look at the fruit of their ministry to see whether they are truly a good tree, producing good fruit. So is Jesus just talking about false prophets here? Or is this a principle that would apply to us as well? What do you guys think? Does it apply to us? Absolutely. This is so true. A tree is known by its fruit. So often we can say we believe one thing, but our actions and our fruit say something else, don't they? Here's a stupid example. I could say I'm a vegetarian, but we go out to lunch together and I order steaks and ribs. So I said one thing, but my actions are proving another, right? Here's a not-so-stupid example. I could say that I treat others the way I want to be treated, but the way I treat others, the way I gossip about others, the way I talk down to my wife proves another. I could say Jesus comes first in my life, but my time devoted to him Versus my time devoted to social media or Netflix or other things proves me wrong. Can you guys see that? How how sometimes our words don't equate with the fruit. Jesus is saying you will recognize them by their fruits. Which leads us to the second command. Beware of false professions. Whether it's in a prophet or a teacher or in yourself. Jesus is telling us do not be deceived by words but examine fruit. Here's a practical question I've been asking myself this week. Is there people in your life that are able to examine fruit? Are there people in your life that are close enough to you and, and honest enough with you where they can tell you where your fruit is maybe not matching up with, with your words? That's a challenging question that I'm asking. Is, 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 are we, are, is our spouse, are our friends able to, to speak truth to us? Like, hey, you're saying this, but the fruit shows this. The second choice Jesus gives us, good fruit or bad fruit, which will you produce? There's only one way to bear good fruit, and we'll see that in just a few minutes. The third contrast Jesus gives us is in verses 21 through 23. The contrast is empty religion versus saving faith. I want to recite this part again just so it's fresh in our minds. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons in your name and prophesy in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Are you guys starting to see why the crowds were astonished, why they were struck out of their wits, at Jesus' teachings? This is, in my view, the heaviest text in the Bible, the most frightening text in the Bible. And I've been praying all week long that God would give me his spirit and give me the strength and the wisdom to preach it to you guys the way he wants me to preach it to you guys. Did Jesus say what I just think he said? Jesus is saying that on the day of judgment there will be many of who? People who call him Lord, Lord who outwardly look like Christians, who said all the right things, prayed all the right things, sang all the right things, and he's going to tell them, I never knew you. Depart from me. Here's what's crazy about this is he's not talking talking about Muslims. He's not talking about Hindus, atheists, agnostics. He's talking about people who called him Lord, Lord, who professed his name, who were very religious, He's talking about people who prophesied and cast out demons and did many mighty works in his name. That's more than I'm doing. That's varsity Christian. And he's saying that Jesus is saying you can profess his name and look the part and and not truly know him, not truly be saved to him. Jesus is saying that many professing believers will one day come to him in judgment and say, Lord, Lord, did I not go to church every Sunday? Did I not serve in the church? Did I not walk up front and say the sinner's prayer? And he will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. There's a poem by a guy named Chris Webb um, that captures this picture. I think he does such an amazing job. Um, This picture of what it would look like for one to come to Jesus on Judgment Day and hear that from Jesus. He says, It's over now. There's no more purpose for my lungs because I'm not breathing. If I thought that I was still alive, i think I was dreaming. I just left the earth. My soul escaped my body. Now I'm dead, and I'm rising into the heavens to find out what lies ahead. This life is over, and my time is done on earth. There's no more stressing. I'm about to meet the one who gave me all my life and blessings. Now it's time to hear his voice, and it's time to feel his embrace, and now it's time to meet my God, and now it's time to see his face. I'm at the gate, and I don't want to wait. I want to see my Savior. I'm going to feel his presence, have his safety, and bathe in his favor. Wait. They open up the gates and sunlight dances through the entrance. If I was alive, I'd pass out from the beauty of his presence. I can sense him all around me. I can feel him every place. He's here. I feel it. But that's not enough. I want to see his face. They close the gate as I walk in. Now, any memories are useless. Any earthly love is worthless because no other can produce this. So much color, so much life and wind and sun and love and music, so much happiness. God loves us, and this paradise can prove it. Where is he at, though? I want to see his face. I'll be around it. And I'm walking through the streets of gold, but I ain't get my crown yet. I feel something. I turn around, and I catch eyes with his. Now, I've never seen him before, but I still know who it is. Right now, I'm face to face with Jesus, looking God right in the eyes. Immediately, I bowed, and if I was alive, I would have cried. Now, God was always right beside me, but I see him. I can touch him. I'll exalt him. I'm going to praise him, magnify him, because I love him. And I'll tell him, you're my king. This happiness cannot be doubled. You're my rock, my life, my ever-present help in time of trouble. And I love you. God, I love you. For eternity, I'll show you. But he looks me in the eyes. And he whispers, do I know you? Do you know me? Yeah, you made me. I was in church every service. But he tells me, church without applying what you learnt is worthless. But I was a choir member. I praised you with poems and acting. But he said he checked the book of life and that my name was absent. And I'm laughing like, there must be some kind of mistake. I just won't hear it. Then he said, I praised him, but I didn't have him in my spirit. I can't bear it. Lord, I thought I gave you praise wholeheartedly. But then he turns his head away, and then he says, depart from me. Lord, help us. Jesus is saying, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, and has an outward facade of religion will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of his Father who is in heaven. Jesus' third command is don't just talk about it, be about it. He's saying that just a profession of faith and outward conformance is useless if your heart is not transformed by him. And a truly transformed heart will always come along with a transformed life that does the will of God. So here's a really important question. What's the will of God? we got to know that. He says it's, it's those who do the will of God who enter the kingdom of heaven. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says, this is the will of God, your sanctification. Literally, the state of being set apart from sin to holiness, that we would be holy as God is holy. And this is what the whole Sermon on the Mount is about, right? God's people look different. They are set apart. That's what we've been seeing. That's why we shine as a light that can't be hidden, right? Jesus is saying, it's not just the people who say they are followers of Jesus who are saved. It's the people who actually follow Jesus who are saved. Hold up. I hope that some of you are seeing attention here. Some of you are seeing that we know that uh, salvation is by grace alone through faith alone, right? Ephesians 2.8. Is Jesus saying something different now? Because he's saying the people who enter the kingdom of heaven are the one who does the will of the Father who is in heaven. Jesus and Paul do not disagree on how a person is saved. These are great questions to ask. We are, this is the way, uh, it's a tension that you'll see throughout the Bible that I hope we're able to understand. I've heard it said this way, we are saved by faith alone, but never faith that is alone. Jesus is saying that doing the will of the Father who is in heaven is not a means to your salvation, but it is an evidence of your salvation. One of my favorite rappers, Timothy Brendel, says it like this obedience is not a prescription on how to be forgiven. It's the description of the Christian who is forgiven. And now the Spirit convicts them to put off and kill their sick sin. What Jesus is saying is that if you merely profess to be a Christian and your life has not been transformed, you're deceiving yourselves. And church, I believe in a room this big, there may be some of you here who are deceived. Jesus wants you to hear this today. And I also know in a room this big that there may be some who are truly saved and who struggle with assurance. And I've been wrestling with all week how to, how to bring this in a way. And I've been asking God, God's help. to. I, I, we, we don't want true believers to doubt their salvation. But at the same time, we can't be so scared of that that we avoid The fact that some people may be be deceived. So Lord, I pray right now, God, that if there are, are true believers in this room that are tempted to doubt their salvation, Lord, that you would comfort them and give them the full assurance of their faith in Christ. But Lord, I also pray if there's anyone deceived in this room, God, don't let anyone in this room get to judgment day and hear that from you, Lord. Please, Father. If you truly know Jesus, your life will show it. This is a simple uh, uh, illustration that helped me understand this. I was supposed to be here at 8.30 this morning. If I showed up at 10 o'clock and everyone was like, where have you been? And I said, sorry I'm late. Um, I, was, I was on 30 actually, got a flat tire, and the lug nut rolled into the middle of the road and I actually got hit by a truck. You guys would be like, um, liar? You're standing up there, you're fine. You look totally fine. Guys, this is what it's like to say that we know Jesus without a transformed life. Knowing Jesus should totally change us. Are we perfect? No. We're growing each day, but we look and we are being conformed into the image of Jesus. If we are truly saved, our fruit will show it. You guys see how those sections are going together? Jesus is saying our fruit will show it. So the third choice Jesus is giving, empty religion or saving, transforming faith. Which one? will describe your life. And the fourth contrast, and more briefly, because uh, Jason's actually going to preach on this section next week, is the rock foundation versus the sand foundation. Jesus is confirming his point yet again through another illustration. He's saying whoever hears these words and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. Whoever hears them and does not do them is like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. Both houses are going to look exactly alike until the storm comes and exposes their foundation. He's saying being doers of the word, all these sections go together. our tree is known by its fruit. It's those who do the will of the Father who is in heaven, who truly know him. And whoever hears these words and does them is the man who built his house on the rock. Can you guys see a little, clearly, a little more clearly why the crowds were astonished and struck out of their wits at this? Why were they so overwhelmed? Why were they struck out of their wits? Because Jesus just spent a whole sermon talking about the kingdom of God and how we're supposed to live according, uh, in accordance to it. And he's made it clear that he's looking for perfection, not 90%, 95%. He wants perfection. Uh, ch- chapter 5, verse 20 says, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. 547 says, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So can anyone actually live up to this? Or is Jesus heaping a burden onto us that we could never bear? Can you bear that burden of perfection? I can't. There was someone who could bear it and is someone who could bear it. He was the perfect embodiment of this sermon. He was hated and reviled for righteousness' sake. He was perfectly pure in heart, never given to anger or lust. He was perfectly poor in spirit, so much so that Jason prayed earlier, he left his throne above and took on the form of a servant and emptied himself for our salvation. When he was hit, he turned the other cheek. He perfectly loved his enemies, so much so that he died for them. He prayed for his enemies and said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He displayed perfect meekness as he hung on the cross, having enough power to save himself and wipe out all his enemies, but he hung hung there for our salvation. He is the reason we can call God our Father. There is only one man who can and one man who has lived up to this perfection, and he is our only hope for salvation, and it's the man giving the Sermon on the Mount. He is the fulfillment of all Scripture of all the Old Testament, all the New Testament. He's the perfect fulfillment of all the Sermon on the Mount, and he's the fulfillment of the four sections that we just studied. How do we enter by the narrow gate? Jesus says in John 10, I am the door. He says in John 14, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. How do we bear good fruit? Jesus says in John 15, I am the vine. Whoever abides in me, he it is that will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing how do we do the will of the Father who is in heaven? Jesus says in John six twenty nine, this is the will of the Father that you would believe in him who he has sent. How do we build our house on the rock? Jesus is the rock. When we put our faith in Jesus and fall at his feet and surrender, he will change us from the inside out. We will become doers of the word who bear good fruit on the narrow way that leads to life. If we say we know him without a changed life, we're deceived. And Lord, keep us from that. But Lord, also keep us from this. If we try to change our lives, if we leave this message and try to change ourselves without truly knowing him, it'll be like stapling apples to a tree. It'll look good for a day or two, but it's gonna die. This Sermon on the Mount series may have you feeling convicted or weighed down. Jason used the illustration of the Grand Canyon. You're standing in awe of how beautiful something is but also you're made aware of how short you how much you fall short guys if that's you if you're feeling that weight on your heart right now know this that is a gift from God and he does not want you to stay there he wants you to turn to the only hope we have Jesus Christ the perfect embodiment of this sermon the way the truth and the life he wants us to turn to him because Jesus we just heard Jesus say I never knew you And it would be a shame if that's all we heard him say, but that's not all we heard him say. We hear Jesus say, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest for your souls. He says, come, everyone who thirsts, come and drink. He says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. This is a call from Jesus to all of us. Come to me. I am your righteousness. I will be your savior. I will walk on that narrow gate with you. I just noticed this on the way here this morning, and I don't know how it escaped me, but each of these sections ends in judgment, right? You got the destruction of the wide gate. You got the, um, the, the tree that's cut down and thrown into the fire with bad fruit. You got the I never knew you, and then you got the, the house that's destroyed by the storm. Jesus is our only way out of those, those judgments. He took that judgment for us so that we could be found in him. He's saying, come to me right now just as you are. He took the destruction of the wide gate so that you and I could have the eternal life of the narrow gate. Jesus became that diseased tree that was cut down and thrown into the fire so that you and I could be good trees who bear good fruit. God turned his face away from Jesus as if he never knew him so that you and I could be perfectly known and perfectly loved by God. Jesus took the fallen destruction of the house built on the sand so that you and I could have the security of the house built on the rock. The Sermon on the Mount is not a checklist of things to do to get right with God. It's a description of a holy and righteous life that Jesus perfectly walked in our place. And this sermon, this series, is a call for us to receive his perfect righteousness and strive and hunger and thirst to walk in his footsteps. Amen.